this series called Messy Miracles. And essentially what it is, is uh, the life of Elijah. This is always so hard, right? Elijah is first and then Elisha. Uh, people, the way I remember it, it's alphabetical. J comes before S last time I checked. So Elijah is first, but then he passes the baton to Elisha. We're going to be looking at that. But what's amazing is so many miracles are recorded within the lives of, of these two uh, men. But what's fascinating is none of it's clear cut. It's always messy. It's never this, this amazing, perfect, there's always something terrible in it. And isn't that true in our lives, right? Where it's like God shows up in a mighty way. There's this great miracle that happens. But then there's all of this mess that came before, during, and after. And, that, and it's actually culminating to Christmas, which we'll talk about a messy miracle, right? The Son of God coming down in a manure pile called a manger. I love how God does that. And I think I find a lot of encouragement looking at that. Another reason we're looking at the life of Elijah and Elisha Trying to examine the culture. I'm such a New Testament guy. I got to throw in some Old Testament every once in a while. So we're doing that. So all you Old Testament people, there you go. But another reason, if you look at the culture in this day, it's so similar to how we are as a people. The culture, if you were to ask people in America in the 1980s and 90s, what was the direction our country was going? Most would say there's going to be no religion. In just a few decades, religion is going to be zapped out completely. And a lot of people had if it depends on where you're, which way you think. A lot of people were hopeful for that. A lot of people were terrified of that. But now we're kind of later on, right, uh, in, the, in the 2010s, approaching the 2020s. The reality is, is maybe, maybe people don't claim religion, but we are in a very spiritual society. Would you guys agree with me on that? Everybody kind of has some spiritual thing. And, and we were actually talking uh, through our Theology of the Gospel class, even uh, today's modern, um, it's called uh, secular humanism, but even atheists, quote-unquote, are spiritual, just not in the spiritual way that we would describe it. What's fascinating in this culture here, we have these people that are worshiping many, many gods. And Elijah and Elisha have this terrible, and this is what we have to figure out, how do you, as a one and only God-fearer, how do you communicate that message to a people who worship several gods? This is something we have to deal with, right? This is something, how do we communicate that message by not looking like a terrible jerk person? You know what I'm saying? How do we do that? And I think it's going to be helpful for us. So we're going to be looking at a showdown at Mount Carmel. I so badly want to call it Carmel. I called it Carmel when I was in Israel and everyone laughed at me. So it's Carmel, okay? So that makes you want to have dessert, right? So it's, uh, you remember that, uh, what's that commercial? No, it's Caramel. No, it's Carmel Shack. Anyways, I'm, shows my age right there. How all the old people are like, what are you saying? All right, so we're looking at Mount Carmel. I'm going to give some context. Mount Carmel for me, it's really fascinating. I went there uh, in January. What's really cool, I don't know if many people know this, actually at Mount Carmel, you can actually see Armageddon, the Valley of Armageddon. Do you guys know that? Which is the largest military force in the world. What's crazy about this, it just looks like grass. The military, they have an underground airport underneath. That's modern day right now. That's crazy. So it's crazy to see that at Mount Carmel to see Armageddon, which is fascinating. But Mount Carmel is special for me for two reasons. One, when I was 13 years old, I went to Discipleship Now conference, tried to listen to this pastor, right? And, and uh, he actually, the last night, talked on 1 Kings chapter 18, which is what we're looking at today. And he talked about Mount Carmel, a great sermon. If only I could preach that sermon today, maybe one of y'all will get saved. But, uh, but, but he did this great message. And I remember him saying, look, 
Elisha was willing to stand up when everyone else was hiding. He was the one who said, look, I believe in my God, and I'm going to stand up in a culture that refuses to. And what's amazing is when Elisha stood up is when everybody started to worship God. And he said, there's somebody in this room that God is calling them to stand up when nobody else will. And I can't tell you, it was so clear to me that God was saying, Trey, that is you. I know you guys are thinking, that's pretty pretentious, right? You know, like, oh, you're the guy. But that's, the Holy Spirit was like, okay, Trey, I'm calling you to do this. And so I walked forward. I, I'm never the walk down the aisle guy. I'm the pastor's kid. I'm supposed to be perfect, right? But I walked down the aisle just like terrified, shaking. And I told the guys like, that's me. You know, that's all I said. And then I was like, I surrender my life in ministry. It's a great moment. And if in this message, someone here gets that call, praise Jesus. I've been praying for that all week. Someone surrendering their life to this call of standing up for God when nobody else will. But there's another reason Mount Carmel is really significant for me, and it's in all the wrong reasons. When I traveled to Israel, I was scared about one thing, my stomach. I have bad stomach problems. Uh, if you know me, it's, uh, it's kind of like my biggest uh, heartache in life is I just don't have a very good stomach. And so when I was in Israel, the whole time I had two moments when my stomach hurt. Okay, I know this is getting to TMI, but whatever. The first time was I was flying to Israel because get how stupid this was. Have you guys ever heard of the serial podcast before? Serial? No, but okay, fantastic. This week, waste all of your time by listening to the serial podcast. Okay, but the serial podcast season two is all about an American soldier who walked, who was in, in uh, Iraq, walked outside of their camp and got taken by Middle Eastern people who were just tearing up. So I was listening about this torture of what they would do to Americans while I'm flying over the Middle East. And you know how hypochondriac I am. I was like, that's going to be me. I, right when I land, I'm going to do something dumb and I'm going to be taken over and they're going to peel my skin off. I was thinking all the, I was starting to breathe heavy. My stomach hurt. Okay. That's, that's, that's number one. So I got over that. I did so good. It was a 10 day trip all nine days. I didn't eat anything bad because I knew my stomach is so messed up and I can't do it. The ninth day, this was the last day. And I was so excited because we're going to Mount Carmel. This was my favorite place. Okay. The resurrection tomb is okay. Now we got that out of the way, but this is such a cool place for me. And what I was so excited about is the, the uh, my brother-in-law told me you were going to preach a sermon on Mount Carmel. I was so pumped, right? I was so excited. Well, that morning I did something so dumb. I grabbed, uh, we were at a gas station, strike one, right? And I got food. That's strike two. What the strike three is I got an ice cream bar. And not only that, but it was a white chocolate, which I know that kind of defines me, but white chocolate doesn't really settle well within me. And so it's never a good thing. And so I ate the white chocolate uh, bar and we're on our way to John chapter four, where the first miracle recorded at Cana. Oh my goodness. I needed my first miracle in my life. I did not feel good at all. And so I remember, uh, I was so thankful. I didn't have a job at this location. Right when I got there, I said, where's the bathroom? Okay. And so I'm not going to try to get too far in, but at the same moment that our people were renewing their vows, I was renewing my vows. Okay. And so it was this great <laughs> moment. Um, and I was terrified. I'm not going to go any further, but it's bad. And so we get back on the bus because we've got to go to Mount Carmel. And this lady, she comes up to me, she says, honey, I love it. I love older. Like she was like 90. I'm like, you're balling. Like she's walking everywhere. She's like, honey, come here. You don't feel good. Do you? I'm like, no, <laughs> Come here, honey. And she went and, you know, her huge purse, finding everything in there. She gets a little Imodium pill. She gives it to me, this will help you, honey. You're, you're okay, honey. She was like trying to rub my back. I was like, okay. But I needed it. I was like, thanks, you know, thanks, grandma. 
I looked at the pill. It was three years expired, but I didn't care. And so I threw that thing in there and said, you have eight more. You know what I'm saying? I was like, I don't care. I'll pay for it later. I just need to preach this impressive, amazing message out Mount Carmel. And so what's really disappointing is I knew a few weeks before that I was going to preach here. I had this huge sermon laid out. I was so excited. But all I could think about when I stood at Mount Carmel is I need to end as fast as possible or I'm going to have another deal going on. You know what I'm saying? Like I'm going to be known for something I never want to be known for. And so I preached. It it was like supposed to be 15 minutes. I think it was like seven minutes, right? And even that I was stretching it. And I'll never forget that, but it's really kind of funny because when you think about 1 Kings 18, it kind of perfectly summarized it. For me, my thought was, man, this is going to be the most impressive message I've ever given. This is at Mount Carmel. I'm going to tell people this is where I gave my life to ministries. I'm going to show how fire came down from the sky, right, and blew this thing up. And I was so excited to be so impressive. And I got there, and all I wanted to do was to run to the nearest restroom as fast as possible. And what's really cool is God actually used it. It started a lot of conversations. But the sermon was terrible. It really was. But God did something unique, and I would never want God to let me do that ever, ever again. I just, okay, God, that was fun. No more. Um, And so I learned a lot of lessons, but actually what I want us to look at today, kind of that summarizes all of 1 Kings 18, it's actually your first point and your only point today. We serve the God of the impossible, right? Amen. God does impossible things that we cannot do no matter how impressive we are. But look, we serve the God of the impossible, not by being impressive, but by being impractical. I want, this is the whole message of 1 Kings 18. And religion, what we want, we want to serve the God of the impossible by ourselves being so impressive. We would love if God does amazing things through us because we are just that cool, right? But no, God's going to mess up your stomach and give you three-year-old expired emodium. That's how God uses people normally. Uh, (laughs) Oh, man, all the stomach people unite. All right, let's look at verse 17. When Ahab saw Elisha, Ahab said to him, Is that you, the one ruining Israel? This is very confronting. By the way, to give context, in chapter 17, we talked about how they were hanging out him with the widow and the widow's son. And now there's been three and a half years of drought. But now he's coming out and saying, Let's do a showdown at Mount Carmel. So verse 18, Elisha replied, I have not ruined Israel, but you and your father's family have. Why? Because you have abandoned the Lord's commands and followed the balls. Now... I called it Baal last week. I did some research. You actually, <laughs> David, you're killing me, man. Uh, uh, you actually call it ball. So I think Americans have done that because there's always junior hires listening and they just laugh every time. Like, you follow the balls. And everyone's like, ah, but it's really called ball. But if you want me to call it Baal, just take a vote and I'll call him Baal from now on. But it's ball. Okay, so verse 19. And now, I hear the giggling. Now, Summon all Israel to meet me at Mount Carmel, along with 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Fair enough. Let's do a showdown. One on 850. He's pretty confident. Verse 20. So Ahab summoned all the Israelites and gathered the prophets at Mount Carmel. We have to remember this. I actually didn't realize it till this week. And I've preached this sermon multiple times, even when my stomach hurt at Mount Carmel. Look, he... All the Israelites were there. Most people only picture the 850 prophets. But you also have the bystanders who are watching this thing unfold. The normal church member, the normal people, right? Now, verse 21. Elijah approached all the people. He's talking to everybody, not just the prophets, and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people didn't answer him a word. 
I think this is super helpful for us in the context we live in today of where everyone says it doesn't matter what religion as long as you pick one and everybody can have their own little God. How do we respond to that? I think this is a difficulty in our growth group. We literally talk about this almost every week. How do you address this issue? It's an issue, isn't it? How do you show them, hey, you're wrong, but I love you, but this is the right way. How do you do it? And I love how Elijah says, quit going back and forth. You need to pick one and go for it. Because the reality is God, 800 years after this, Jesus says the same thing. He says, you're either what? For me or you are against me. There's no both and. You can't kind of follow God and not. And so Elijah's saying, go all in on one of the gods, but you cannot do both. Something that's interesting and helpful context, Baal, I used to think was one singular God, but Baal actually represents the worship of every other God. Baal meant that it's kind of like Greek mythology, right? That there's a God of rain, but there's also a God of strength. And there's a God of military, God of this, God, God of success, God of family. And so what he's saying, look, either worship every other God, Look for success, look for approval in all the other ways, or trust in God and God alone. Now, here's, I think, where we struggle, because we have believed the lie that Christianity is about being impressive. But most of Christianity is about being impractical. Here's the impressive thing to do. The impressive thing is to tell your friends, look, I know you serve another God, and that's cool because we're all friends here. We're all allies. You don't need to pick a side. As long as you're doing something, that's great. And that's impressive because that will make your non-believing friend like you more. The problem is that he'll like you more, but then what happens in eternity? You know what I'm saying? What God is calling us to do is rather to do the impractical and actually risk a relationship. It needs to be wise. You need to be smart how you do it. Don't be obnoxious. You know what? You know what I'm saying? But you need to say, look, it's about choosing allegiance. I'm sorry. You either follow God or the every other way doesn't lead to God. Every other way doesn't lead to eternity. We have to be that straightforward. Here's why. I, I think for me, it's hard for me. I love when people like me. It's not often, but I love when it happens. You know what I'm saying? And so I get pumped about it. And this is one of the ways I think people, they don't like Christians because we, we seem so absolute. But the reality is, here's what happens. If we become a people that say, ah, it's not really that big of a deal. You, don't, you can do whatever you want. This is just the way we follow. You are completely diminishing the work of Jesus on the cross. Think about it. If there was any other way for us to get to heaven, why would God send his own son and let the God-man be killed at the hands of Roman soldiers, be crucified, the most, the most uh, blasphemous death possible, and to be laid in a tomb? Do you really think if there was another way to heaven that God would allow his son to do that? So when we say, oh, it, all that matters is that if you just believe in something, we're completely ripping away the whole purpose of the cross. And so it sounds like we're being loving to them, but can you, can you think about how we're diminishing what Jesus has done for us? So we have to do it. Tim Keller, he's actually super helpful for this. It's hard, right? Because that sounds true, but then you know somebody who believes something else and it's so hard to tell them otherwise. Tim Keller put it this way. He talks about, you know, uh, a lot of people say this. Look, you can't say your view of spirituality is superior to anybody else's. Yeah, anybody ever tell you that? You know, that's just your view. You can have your view, but this is my view. This is Tim Keller's response. He's saying, when you say that statement, you're saying to that person that your view of spirituality is greater than any other person. When you claim that every religion's okay, you are claiming that you are smarter and know everything more than all of those other religions. Think about it. That's pretty audacious claim. Because when you say every religion goes together, there are certain things in the Muslim faith 
that are completely contradictory, because there's absolutes in that faith, that are completely against the Christian faith. You cannot, nobody can agree, if you're Christian, you know Muslims can't, it's a, Islam is different, and Islam say, yeah, Christianity is different. There's no way they can coincide. And isn't it impressive to say that they do? But when you actually get down to the nitty-gritty and actually think it through, it's absolutely impossible. So it's imperative. I love that Elijah says, you need to pick one. Quit this whole wishy-washy thing, because here's the reality, guys. Why does God call us to such absolutes? Man's eternity is always more significant than man's esteem. At the end of the day, I want everybody to love us. I want them to know that I love them. But at the end of the day, push comes to shove, I still want them to know the truth because at the end of the day, I don't want their blood on my head and I want them to know that this is the only way. Isn't that good? I thought so. All right, verse 22, we gotta get going. Then Elisha said to the people, I am the only remaining prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us. They are to choose one bull for themselves, cut it in pieces, and place it on the wood, but not light the fire. I will prepare the other bull and place it on the wood, but not light the fire. Then you call on the name of your God, and I'll call on the name of the Lord, the God who answers with fire. He is God. And I love this. All the people answered, that's fine. Let's do it. I could just should we do this? Like, yeah, that, yeah. So they get together and they do it. Verse 25. Verse 25 says, Then Elisha said to the prophets of Baal, Since you are so numerous, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first. Then call on the name of your God, but don't light the fire. So they took the bull. He gave them, prepared it, called on the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, Baal, answer us. But there was no sound. No one answered. Then they danced around the altar they had made. Notice this progression. Verse 27, At noon, Elisha mocked them. It is biblical to mock people. I love that. You know what I'm saying? No, my wife doesn't. Okay, he said... Shout loudly, for he's a lowercase g God. Maybe he's thinking it over. You know what that really means in the Hebrew? I think maybe you've heard this preached before. But he's saying maybe he's sitting on the toilet reading a newspaper and he's thinking about things. He's literally saying that. I love that. Elijah's my boy. You know what I'm saying? He's like, oh, maybe he's tinkle-towning a little bit. Give him some time, okay? But then he goes further. He goes, oh, yeah, or maybe he wandered away. Maybe he got lost. The GPS wasn't working for him. Or maybe he's on the road. Perhaps he's sleeping and will wake up. Can you see this happening? There's 850 people that are dancing and doing all these things. He's like, yeah, he's probably asleep. Like, yeah, because he knows there's no God there, right? I love it. He's my kind of guy. First, I just would never want to be on his bad side. But verse 29, verse 28, sorry. They shouted loudly and cut themselves with knives and spears according to their custom until blood gushed over them. All afternoon they kept on raving until the offering of the evening sacrifice, but there was no sound. No one answered. No one paid attention. Something that's fascinating, this was kind of the, the, the foundation of all, every false religion, and this is what they believed. In order for my God, again, lowercase g, God, to do the impossible, I must do the impressive. They're thinking, what can I do? How can I perform more? I, let me do this. Let me do that. Let me try a little bit harder. And so as you see, they went from dancing to shouting even louder to cutting themselves. Which, by the way, side note, I love that every other God, they make you mutilate your flesh to get accepted. Our God mutilated himself so that we would be accepted. That's good gospel right there. So thankful for that. But, but here, religion, 
And I say that in the negative sense. Religion is famous for this, right? I, if I perform for God, God must perform for me. If I am impressive, then God must do the impossible. But here's the roads that those two lead. Uh, that here's what happens when you do that. One, you're either a super prideful person and nobody likes you. Okay, you have no friends. You might be that religious person who thinks you're better than everybody because you've convinced yourself I am actually impressive. I know everything. I am the I'm the man. And that leads to pride, and we see that in the Pharisees. Or, and maybe some of you are here today, that leads to also despair. When you try to do any kind of religion that's about your performance, it's about you being impressing God, you doing all these right things in order for God to love you, you finally reach this point when you see the blood gushing all over you. Maybe this isn't working, or maybe I'm just not good enough. And it leads to despair. Some of the heart, one of my most heartbreaking talks I've ever had with people is those who are raised in the church but they're completely done with God. But I tell them, look, you were done with the wrong God. The true God would never ask you to cut yourself. The true God cut himself for you. I think that's good. Here, here's something they're missing, and we need to get going because this is a long story, but what they're missing is this. Every other religion says this. The power of God is about basing it on you. How, how much power do you want? It's about how good you are. No, no, no. The gospel says the power of God is about placing it on you. It had nothing to do with you. It's about you receiving. Do you guys see that? That's good gospel stuff. Anybody here today? All right, verse 30. No one answered. No, I feel like verse 29. No sound. No one answered. No one paid attention. No, okay. All right, verse 30. I got to make another ball joke and we're back in. All right, so. Then Elisha, then Elisha said to all the people, come near me. I love this. So all the people approached him. Then he re repaired the Lord's altar that had been torn down. Elijah took 12 stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the Lord had come, saying, Israel will be your name. And he built an altar with the stones in the name of the Lord. Then he made a trench around the altar, large enough to hold about four gallons. Next, he arranged wood, cut up the bull, and placed it on the wood. I love this part. He said, fill four water pots with water and pour it on the offering to be burned and on the wood. Third, verse 34, then he said a second time, and they did it a second time. Then he said, a third time. And they did it a third time. So the water ran all around the altar. He even filled the trench with water. Why did, why did Elisha do this? Why is he saying pour water? Well, as I was reading the text, and I've heard this preached always, of course, you're thinking, like for me, if it, like uh, just this week, I tried to burn some grass. You know, I like dug up some grass that was on the edges and I threw it in my fire pit. And uh, I'm so dumb. I put my fire pit so close to my neighbor. I'm always terrified I'm going to burn my neighbor's house down. Anyways, I digress. And uh, we could not light that thing up because it was just been soaked in water so long, right? It was tough. So I had to get gas and it worked. But you know what I'm saying? My neighbor probably wasn't happy and I don't think it was against HOA rule, but whatever. So water you know, makes it harder to light on fire. And I used to think that's the only reason Elijah did this. How impressive, right? Look, to even let's, let's stack the odds against us. And this is impractical. Let's pour water to really show you. So when fire comes down, fire happens and boom, you can't say I had a secret match underneath. There, there's no gimmicks here. You guys saw it. Water was everywhere. And I think that's definitely an element of it. But I don't think that's the most miraculous part. To me, the fire coming down from heaven is miraculous enough for me. You know what I'm saying? I think that's cool enough. Like, throw water, okay, that's like a cherry on top. But that's not really the cool thing. The cool thing is I saw fire come down from heaven and blow this thing up. You know, but, you know, people aren't walking away saying, but there was water on it. No, they didn't care about that. They said, I saw a fireball. That's crazy. You know what I'm saying? 
But, but here's what I recognize in reading this. And I was thinking it through. Let's think context here. The people of God were just in how long of a drought? Three and a half years, right? Three and a half years. Here's what's so cool. They didn't have much water left. We know this. My question is, how did they get the, the four gallons of water? Plus, they did it over so multiple, multiple gallons of water. How is that possible? Here's what I love. This is so cool. Because when I heard the message when I was a little teenager, and I heard, okay, if one person stands up for God, great and mighty things happen. Right? And I love that. And I believe in that. But what I love about this is God doesn't show up until his people get together and start sacrificing. What is so amazing, and, I, and we read this and think, okay, he asked for water, and boom, there was water. I happen to think, because I know church people, you know what I'm saying? Hey, bring water. And everybody's hiding their water bottle, you know what I'm saying? Because this is their only water that they have. Bro, it's a drought. I didn't know. You didn't tell me two weeks ahead of time that I needed water, extra water. This is all the water that I need for me to get back home. I'm not going to give this out. And he says, all right, here, you know, it's like that old SBC pastor back in the day. Is there one more? You know what I'm saying? Like he's just waiting for more water to come. And eventually we see it happen once. And then the guy, I can see one guy like, whoo. I almost gave up my water. He says, a second time, shoot. You know what I'm saying? And then he gives it, then the third, and it's just overflowing with water. Guys, this is such a good principle because God wants us to do the impossible. And it's not by best being impressive, but it's by doing the impractical. And part of that means, guys, I don't believe God moves until we as a collective body start sacrificing together and giving towards one another to allow God to do something great. You know what I mean? I don't care how special one person is. Elijah couldn't bring down fire from heaven until he got the people of God to surrender the thing that was most important to them because it's communicating, God, you are more important to me than life itself. My question to you, because guys, I wanted to do something great in this city. What is the one thing you need to sacrifice? What is the one thing you need to lay down at the altar of God? Because guys, I believe we have big plans and there's great things coming, but I'm not so sure it's going to happen until all of us get together and say, okay, God, we are here for you. We believe you. We are sacrificing everything in order for you to move. I love that. I don't know. I'm a fan. But how impractical was this? How wasteful? Elijah, the fire thing's cool enough. Why you got to take my water? And God does that. God, you could do this anyways. Why do you have to make me give? You know, God, you can do this anyways. Why do I have to adopt? Why can't my neighbors adopt? You know what I'm saying? And all these things. But that is exactly how God shows up and he works. But I have to keep going. Okay, so. Oh, yeah, I had a cool quote. Allow God to flow through you, not just to you. Amen. All right, so. Verse 36. All right. At the time of the offering, the evening sacrifice, the prophet Elisha approached the altar and said, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, today let it be known that you are God in Israel, and I am your servant, and that at your word I have done all these things. And by the way, I used to read this as Elisha being so pumped and powerful and convicting, but I'm realizing he just went through a three and a half year drought, and he was just with a widow and her son for three years, and kids don't ever stop talking. You know what I'm saying? I feel like God humbled this man so now Elisha he's not puffing up his chest he's saying God has been providing for me in this last three years of drought I believe he's going to show up mightily what verse did I stop at verse 37 answer me Lord answer me so that this people will know that you the Lord are God and have turned their hearts back (laughs) this is so cool then the Lord's fire fell consumed the burnt offering the wood the stones and the dust 
and licked up the water that was in the trench. When all the people saw it, they fell face down and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. They picked sides. I love this. And I love what's so encouraging for me is that God did this not by getting a bunch of people together and doing something super impressive. No, no. Every other religion says this. Do the impossible by being impressive. Christianity says, no, no, no. Do the impossible by being impractical. Why? Because we are imperfect, but we serve a God who's impotent and all-knowing and all-powerful. And it's about Him doing the crazy stuff in and through us impractical people. I like it. Guys, here, Christianity isn't impressive in the world's eyes. There's no Christianity without a bloody Savior. There's no Christianity without a cross. There's no. And by the way, let me just read verse 40 because I don't want to be a hypocrite. This is the weird, impractical, not impressive stuff. Then Elijah ordered them, seize the prophets of Baal. Do not let even one of them escape. So they seized him, and Elijah brought them down to Wadi Kadash and slaughtered them there. That's not very pretty, is it? But this was a showdown. Okay? I think this is so good. But, but here, music can start coming up. I need to start closing this. But here's what's so powerful about this. What does this mean for us? How can we get impractical? First of all, I think we need to say, okay, it's about God or not. We need to collectively as a people realize it's about Jesus is the only way. We see that in verse 21. But I think also what we see and we learn from Elisha is that in order for God to move, we as a people need to sacrifice. We as a people need to surrender in order for God to show up amongst his people. I think that's very powerful. But what I love, I stopped doing this, and I was thinking, okay, what is my next week's sermon? And 1 Kings 19 is so good. Next week is about depression. But I'm trying to figure out, okay, what do I do with verse 41 through 46? And God showed me, this is how you end it, because this is so powerful. I've never heard many people talk about it. Look, verse 41. He says, Elisha said to Ahab, remember, three and a half year drought. Go up, eat and drink, for there is the sound of a rainstorm. The sound. I used to read this and think, okay, but for us, how do we know rain's coming? We see the rain, right? Don't you always see the rain before you hear the rain? We're like, I'm from Arizona. I don't know what rain is. You know what I'm saying? But work with me here, right? You, okay, maybe you can hear the, the lightning or the thunder. I get it, but whatever. But that's because you can see it coming. But here's what I love. It's fascinating. Nobody else could see it. He says in verse 42, So Ahab went to eat and drink, but Elijah went up to the summit of Carmel. He bent down on the ground and put his face between his knees. Why did, why did Elijah do this? He says, I hear rain. What I would do, I would get up to the summit and look up. Where's the clouds, right? No, no, he, put, he looked down. Because Elisha's learned this principle that is found in Christ. Look, we walk by faith and not by sight. How does God do something impossible through us? It's by being impractical. And one of the most impractical things that the world does not understand is we are a people who hear the word of the Lord before we see the work of the Lord. What word has God given you that you've heard it, but because you haven't seen it, you haven't pursued it? I love, when it says the sound of the rainstorm, I don't think he hears whatever rain sounds like, right? I think he's hearing God saying, rain is coming. Hurry up. The rain is coming. Trust me. Hey, I'm faithful. The rain is coming. I just showed myself. I'm powerful among the people. The people just sacrificed everything. Rain is coming. 
And I would love for us to be a people that doesn't say, okay, God, but where I don't see it. And I don't want to be a people that just looks even further and gets the binos out. I want to be a people that says, okay, God, I already believe you. I'm going to put my head down because I know where the true source comes from. And I walk by faith, not by sight. I don't need to see it yet anyways. I believe it. So I'm going to act upon it. And what's so cool is he tells a servant, go look. He comes back. I didn't see anything. Go look again. Does this seven times. Do got a good workout, right? And he's like, I don't see it. I don't see it. But then the seventh time he says, you know what? I see a cloud. And it's a, it says it says a size of a man's hand. And this size of the man's hand is what brought forth the flooding. Friends, I fear that so many of us, we have fallen to the lie of this world by thinking God will only show up and we need to see it first before we believe it. Friends, what is it in your life? You're wanting God to show up in a mighty way. As a believer in Jesus, friends, some of you are waiting to see something before you surrender to him. Friends, the word is good enough. That is how God works. God has revealed truth to your heart. God has spoken to you, and that is enough. You know what's so cool? When you actually believe that and surrender to it is when he starts showing it to you. But you must first believe. You must first submit, and that is how God shows up. And I just fear, because I talk to myself. I know me. I know us. We keep saying, God, I'll do great and mighty things for you once you show me this. And God is saying, you don't get it, do you? Walk by faith, not by sight. That's not just a fun thing to put on a wall. I have put this word in your heart. God, what God loves to do, he loves to declare something before he delivers it. And so we need to be a people that takes his declaration and treat it as deliverance and move forward. Imagine, because guys, true faith keeps sowing even when nothing else seems to be growing. True faith keeps waiting even when it looks like it's not raining. Let's pray.